Chapter 19 of Memories and Adventures This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by A Fine Voice Memories and Adventures by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle Chapter 19 An Appeal to the World's Opinion Misrepresentation A Sudden Resolve Reginald Smith A Week's Hard Work The Cause and Conduct of the War Translations German Letter Complete Success Surplus One of the most pleasing and complete episodes in my life was connected with the pamphlet which I wrote upon the methods and objects of our soldiers in South Africa. It was an attempt to stem the extraordinary outbreak of defamation which had broken out in every country, or nearly every country in Europe, and which had attained such a height that it really seemed that on this absolutely fictitious basis might be built up a powerful political combination which would involve us in a serious war. I can well remember the inception of my enterprise. The date was January the 7th, 1902. The day was a Tuesday. Sir Henry Thompson was holding that evening one of those charming octave dinners at which it was my occasional privilege to attend, and I was going up to town from Hindhead to keep the engagement. Sitting alone in a carriage, I read the foreign correspondence of the Times. In a single column there were accounts of meetings in all parts of Europe, notably one of some hundreds of Rhineland clergymen protesting against our brutalities to our enemies. There followed a whole column of extracts from foreign papers, with grotesque descriptions of our barbarities. To anyone who knew the easy-going British soldier, or the character of his leaders, the thing was unspeakably absurd. And yet, as I laid down the paper and thought the matter over, I could not but admit that these continental people were acting under a generous and unselfish motive, which was much to their credit. How could they help believing those things, and believing them was it not their duty by meeting, by article, by any means, to denounce them? Could we accuse them of being credulous? Would we not be equally so if all our accounts of any transaction came from one side, and were supported by such journalists, and, above all, such artists as lent their pens and pencils, whether venally or not, to the Boer cause? Of course we would. And whose fault was it that our side of the question was not equally laid before the jury of the civilised world? Perhaps we were too proud, perhaps we were too negligent, but the fact was obvious that judgment was being given against us by default. How could they know our case? Where could they find it? If I were asked what document they could consult, what could I answer? Blue books and state papers are not for the multitude. There were books like Fitzpatrick's Transvaal from Within, or E.T. Cook's Rights and Wrongs, but these were expensive volumes and not readily translated. Nowhere could be found a statement which covered the whole ground in a simple fashion. Why didn't some Briton draw it up? And then, like a bullet through my head, came the thought, Why don't you draw it up yourself? The next instant I was on fire with the idea. 
Seldom in my life have I been so conscious of a direct imperative call which drove every other thought from the mind. If I were a humble advocate, it was all the better, since I could have no axe to grind. I was fairly well posted in the facts already, as I had written an interim history of the war. I had seen something of the campaign and possessed many documents which bore upon the matter. My plans widened every instant. I would raise money from the public and by the sale of the book at home. With this, I would translate it into every language. These translations should be given away wholesale. Every professor, every clergyman, every journalist, every politician should have one put under his nose in his own language. In future, if they traduced us, they could no longer plead ignorance that there was another side to the question. Before I reached London, all my programme was sketched out in my head. There was no item of it, I may add, which was not eventually carried through. Fortune was my friend. I have said that I was dining that night with Sir Henry Thompson. My neighbour at dinner was a gentleman whose name I had not caught. My mind being full of the one idea, my talk soon came round to it, and instead of my neighbour being bored, my remarks were received with a courteous and sympathetic attention, which caused me to make even greater demands upon his patience. Having listened from the soup to the savoury, often has my conscience rebuked me since, he ended by asking me mildly how I proposed to raise the money for these wide-reaching schemes. I answered that I would appeal to the public. He asked me how much would suffice. I answered that I could make a start with a thousand pounds. He remarked that it would take much more than that. However, he added, if a thousand pounds would go any way towards it, I have no doubt that sum could be got for you. From whom, I asked. He gave me his name and address and said, I have no doubt that if you carry out the scheme on the lines you suggest, I could get the money. When you have done your work, come to me and we will see how it is best to proceed. I promised to do so and thanked him for his encouragement. Sir Eric Barrington of the Foreign Office was the name of this fairy godfather. This was my first stroke of good luck. A second came next morning. I had occasion to call upon the publishing house of Smith, Elder & Co. over some other business, and during the interview I told Mr. Reginald Smith the plan that I had formed. Without a moment's hesitation he placed the whole machinery of his worldwide business at my disposal, without payment of any kind. From that moment he became my partner in the enterprise, and I found his counsel at every stage of as great help to me as the publishing services which he so generously rendered. Not only did he save heavy costs to the fund, but he arranged easily and successfully those complex foreign transactions which the scheme entailed. That morning I called at the War Office and was referred by them to the Intelligence Department, where every information which they possessed was freely put at my disposal. I then wrote to the Times explaining what I was trying to do and asking those who sympathised with my object to lend me their aid. Never was an appeal more generously or rapidly answered. My morning post on the day after brought me 127 letters, nearly all of which contained sums drawn from every class of the community, varying from the £50 of Lord Rosebery to the half-crown of the widow of a private soldier. Most of the remittances were accompanied by letters which showed that, however they might pretend in public to disregard it, 
the attitude of the foreign critics had really left a deep and bitter feeling in the hearts of our people. It was on January the 9th that I was able to begin my task. On the 17th I had finished it. When the amount of matter is considered and the number of researches and verifications which it entailed, I need not say that I had been absorbed in the work and devoted, I dare say, 16 hours a day to its accomplishment. So far as possible I kept my individual opinions in the background and made a more effective case by marshalling the statements of eyewitnesses, many of them Boers, on the various questions of farm burnings, outrages, concentration camps and other contentious subjects. I made the comments as simple and as short as I could, while as to the accuracy of my facts I may say that, save as to the exact number of farmhouses burned, I have never heard of one which has been seriously questioned. It was a glad day for me when I was able to lay down my pen with the feeling that my statement was as full and as effective as it was in me to make it. Meanwhile the subscriptions had still come steadily in until nearly £1,000 more had been banked by the time that the booklet was finished. The greater number of contributions were in small sums from people who could ill afford it. One notable feature was the number of governesses and others residing abroad whose lives had been embittered by their inability to answer the slanders which were daily uttered in their presence. Many of these sent their small donations. A second pleasing feature was the number of foreigners resident in England who supported my scheme, in the hope that it would aid their own people to form a juster view. From Norwegians alone I received nearly £50 with this object. If Britain's own children too often betrayed her at a crisis of her fate, she found at least warm friends among the strangers within her gates. Point worth noting was that a disproportionate sum was from clergymen, which was explained by several of them as due to the fact that since the war began they had been pestered by anti-national literature and took this means of protesting against it. The proofs having been printed, I sent them to my Foreign Office friend as I had promised and presently received an invitation to see him. He expressed his approval of the work and handed me a banknote for £500, at the same time explaining that the money did not come from him. I asked if I might acknowledge it as from an anonymous donor. The donor would not object, said my friend. So I was able to head my list with a loyal Briton who contributed £500. I dare say the Secret Service knew best whence the money came. By this time the banking account had risen to some £2,000 and we were in a position to put our foreign translations in hand. The British edition had in the meantime been published, the distribution being placed in the hands of Messrs Nunes, who gave the enterprise wholehearted aid. The book was retailed at sixpence, but as it was our desire that the sale should be pushed, it was sold to the trade at about threepence. The result was to leave the main profit of the enterprise in the hands of the retailer. The sale of the pamphlet was very large. In fact, I should imagine that it approached a record in the time. Some 250,000 copies were sold in Great Britain very quickly and about 300,000 within a couple of months. This great sale enabled us to add considerably to the fund by the accumulation of the small rebate which had been reserved upon each copy. Our financial position was very strong, therefore, in dealing with the foreign translations. 
The French edition was prepared by Professor Sumicrast of Harvard University, who was a French-Canadian by birth. This gentleman patriotically refused to take any payment for his work, which was admirably done. It was published without difficulty by Galignani, and several thousands were given away where they would do most good in France, Belgium and Switzerland. 20,000 copies of this edition were printed. The German edition was a more difficult matter. No German publisher would undertake it, and the only courtesy which we met with in that country was from Baron von Tauschnitz, who included the volume in his well-known English library. Our advances were met with coldness, and occasionally with insult. Here, for example, is a copy of an extreme specimen of the kind of letter received. January 1902. Messrs. Smith, Elder and Co. Gent. Doyle's book makes the impression as if it was ordered or influenced by the English Jingo Party. Now, you know, this English war party, as well as the English officers and soldiers in Transvaal, are contempted by the whole civilised world as coward scoundrels and vile brutes who murder women and children. It would be for me, as an importer of English literature to Germany, Austria and Russia, in the highest degree imprudent to do anything that could await the suspicion I was in connection with so despised a party. I have shown your letter to several persons. Nobody was inclined to take up the matter. There is a mixture of venom and smugness about this epistle, which gives it a high place in my collection. In spite of rebuffs, however, I found an Anglo-German publishing house in Berlin to undertake the work, and with the assistance of Herr Kurt von Musgrave, who gave me an excellent translation, I was able to work off more than one very large edition, which had a perceptible effect in modifying the tone of that portion of the German press which was open to reason. Altogether 20,000 copies were distributed in the Fatherland and German-speaking Austria. I remember one whimsical incident at this time. Somewhat tired, after the book was in the press, I went down to Seaford for a rest. While there, a message reached me that a pan-German officer of Landwehr had come over to London and desired to see me. I wired that I could not come up, but that I should be happy to see him if he came down. Down he came accordingly, a fine upstanding soldierly man, speaking excellent English. The German proofs had passed through his hands, and he was much distressed by the way in which I had spoken of the hostility which his countrymen had shown us, and its effect upon our feelings towards them. We sat all day and argued the question out. His great point as a pan-German was that some day both Germany and Britain would have to fight Russia, Britain for India, and Germany perhaps for the Baltic provinces. Therefore they should keep in close touch with each other. I assured him that at the time the feeling in this country was much more bitter against Germany than against Russia. He doubted it. I suggested as a test that he should try the question upon any bus driver in London as a fair index of popular opinion. He was very anxious that I should modify certain paragraphs and I was equally determined not to do so, as I was convinced they were true. Finally, when he left me on his return to London, he said, Well, I have come 800 miles to see you, and I ask you now, as a final request, that in the translation you will allow the one word leader. 
alas, to be put at the opening of that paragraph. I was perfectly ready to agree to this, so he got one word in exchange for 1,600 miles of travel, and I think it was a very sporting venture. One charming incident connected with this German translation was that a small group of Swiss, and in no country had we such warm-hearted friends as among the minority in Switzerland, were so keen upon the cause that they had a translation and an edition of their own, with large print and maps. It was published independently at Zurich. Dr. Angst, the British consul in that town, helped to organise it. Amongst other good friends who worked hard for the truth and exposed themselves to much obloquy in doing so, were Professor Narville, the eminent Egyptologist of Geneva, and Monsieur Talichet, the well-known editor of the Bibliothèque Universelle of Lausanne, who sacrificed the circulation of his old established magazine in upholding our cause. So much for the French and German editions. The American and Canadian had arranged themselves. There remained the Spanish, Portuguese, Italian, Hungarian and Russian, all of which were rapidly prepared and circulated without a hitch, save that in the case of the Russian, which was published at Odessa, the censor suppressed it at the last instant. We were successful, however, in getting his veto removed. In each of these countries, several thousands of the booklet were given away. In every case, we found a larger sale for these foreign editions than we expected, arising no doubt from the eagerness of English residents abroad to make their neighbours understand our position. The Dutch edition was a stumbling block. This gallant little nation felt a most natural sympathy for their kinsfolk in arms against us, and honestly believed that they had been very badly used. We should certainly have felt the same. The result was that we were entirely unable to find either publisher or distributor. The greater the opposition, the more obvious was the need for the book, so Mr Reginald Smith arranged that a large edition should be printed here and sent direct to all leaders of Dutch opinion. I believe that out of some 5,000 copies, not more than 20 were sent back to us. The Norwegian edition also presented some difficulties, which were overcome by the assistance of Mr Thomason of the Verdensgang. This gentleman's paper was entirely opposed to us, but in the interests of fair play, he helped me to get my book before the public. I hope that some relaxation in his attitude towards us in his paper may have been due to a fuller comprehension of our case and a realisation of the fact that the nation does not make great sacrifices extending over years for an ignoble cause. One other incident in connection with the Norwegian edition is pleasant for me to recall. I had prefaced each continental version with a special foreword, designed to arrest the attention of the particular people whom I was addressing. In this case, when the book was going to press in Christiania, the preface had not arrived from the translator, the accomplished Madame Brockman, and as she lived a hundred miles off, with all the passes blocked by a phenomenal snowstorm, it looked as if it must be omitted. Finally, however, my short address to the Scandinavian people was heliographed across from snow peak to snow peak, and so found its way to the book. There was one other language into which the books needed to be translated, and that was the Welsh. For the vernacular press of the Principality 
was almost entirely pro-Boer, and the Welsh people had the most distorted information as to the cause for which their fellow countrymen fought so bravely in the field. The translation was done by Mr. W. Evans, and some 10,000 copies were printed for distribution through the agency of the Cardiff Western Mail. This finished our labours. Our total output was 300,000 of the British edition, about 50,000 in Canada and the United States, 20,000 in Germany, 20,000 in France, 5,000 in Holland, 10,000 in Wales, 8,000 in Hungary, 5,000 in Norway and Sweden, 3,500 in Portugal, 10,000 in Spain, 5,000 in Italy and 5,000 in Russia. There were editions in Tamil and Canarese, the numbers of which I do not know. In all I have seen 20 different presentments of my little book. The total sum at our disposal amounted to about £5,000 of which, speaking roughly, half came from subscriptions and the other half was earned by the book itself. It was not long before we had the most gratifying evidence of the success of these efforts. There was a rapid and marked change in the tone of the whole continental press, which may have been a coincidence, but was certainly a pleasing one. In the case of many important organs of public opinion, there could, however, be no question of coincidence, as the arguments advanced in the booklet and the facts quoted were cited in their leading articles as having modified their former anti-British views. This was the case with the Tagblatt of Vienna, whose London representative, Dr. Morris Ernst, helped me in every way to approach the Austrian public. So it was also with the National Zeitung in Berlin, the Independence Belge in Brussels and many others. In the greater number of cases, however, it was unreasonable to suppose that a journal would publicly eat its own words, and the best result for which we could hope was that which we often attained, an altered and less acrimonious tone. Mr. Reginald Smith and I now found ourselves in the very pleasant position of having accomplished our work so far as we could do it, and yet of having in hand a considerable sum of money. What were we to do with it? To return it to subscribers was impossible, and indeed at least half of it would have to be returned to ourselves, since it had been earned by the sale of the book. I felt that the subscribers had given me a free hand with the money to use it to the best of my judgment for national aims. Our first expense was in immediate connection with the object in view, for we endeavoured to supplement the effect of the booklet by circulating a large number of an excellent Austrian work, Recht und Unrecht in Burenkrieg, by Dr. Ferdinand Hertz. Six hundred of these were distributed where they might do most good. Our next move was to purchase half a dozen very handsome gold cigarette cases. On the back of each was engraved, From Friends in England to a Friend of England. These were distributed to a few of those who had stood most staunchly by us. One went to the eminent French publicist, Monsieur Yves Guyot, a second to Monsieur Talichet of Lausanne, a third to Mr. Sumicrast, and a fourth to Professor Naville. By a happy coincidence, the latter gentleman happened to be in this country at the time, and I had the pleasure of slipping the small souvenir into his hand as he put on his overcoat in the hall of the Athenaeum Club. I have seldom seen anyone look more surprised. 
There remained a considerable sum, and Mr. Reginald Smith shared my opinion that we should find some permanent use for it, and that this use should bring benefit to natives of South Africa. We therefore forwarded £1,000 to Edinburgh University, to be so invested as to give a return of £40 a year, which should be devoted to the South African student who acquitted himself with most distinction. There are many Afrikander students at Edinburgh, and we imagined that we had hit upon a pleasing common interest for Boer and for Britain. But I confess that I was rather amazed when at the end of the first year I received a letter from a student expressing his confidence that he would win the bursary, and adding that there could be no question as to his eligibility, as he was a full-blooded Zulu. The fund, however, was by no means exhausted, and we were able to make contributions to the Civilian Riflemen's Movement, to the Union Jack Club, to the Indian Famine, to the Japanese Nursing, to the Irish Old Soldiers Institute, to the Fund for Distressed Boers, and to many other deserving objects. These donations varied from fifty guineas to ten. Finally we were left with a residuum which amounted to three hundred nine pounds, no shillings and four pence. Mr. Reginald Smith and I sat in solemn conclave over this sum, and discussed how it might best be used for the needs of the Empire. The fourpence presented no difficulty, for we worked it off upon the crossing sweeper outside, who had helped to relieve Delhi. Nine pounds went in tobacco for the Chelsea veterans at Christmas. There remained the good round sum of three hundred pounds. We bethought us of the saying that the safety of the Empire might depend upon a single shot from a twelve-inch gun, and we devoted the whole amount to a magnificent cup to be shot for by the various ships of the Channel Squadron, the winner to hold it for a single year. The stand of the cup was from the oak timbers of the victory, and the trophy itself was a splendid one in solid silver gilt. By the kind and judicious cooperation of Admiral Sir Percy Scott, the inspector of target practice, through whose hands the trophy passed to the senior admiral afloat, Sir Arthur Wilson, V.C., in command of the Channel Squadron, all difficulties were overcome, and the cup was shot for that year, and has since produced, I am told, great emulation among the various crews. Our one condition was that it should not be retained in the mess-room, but should be put out on the deck, where the winning blue jackets could continually see it. I learned that the Exmouth came into Plymouth Harbour with the cup on the top of her fore-turret. The one abiding impression left upon my mind by the whole episode is that our government does not use publicity enough in stating and defending its own case. If a private individual could, by spending £3,000 and putting in a month's work, make a marked impression upon the public opinion of the world, what could be done by a really rich and intelligent organisation? But the first requisite is that you should honestly have a just cause to state. Who is there outside England who really knows the repeated and honest efforts made by us to settle the eternal Irish question and hold the scales fair between rival Irishmen? We certainly do, as a great Frenchman said, defend ourselves very badly. If we let cases go by default, how can we imagine that the verdict can be in our favour? End of chapter 19